Well, here we are, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the first half, second half we'll cover next week. As Braden opened, rights and freedoms have to be one of the most talked about words in our world right now. Hashtag let him play, Black Lives Matter, Me Too, is it Australia Day, is it Invasion Day? Just a few recent topics that have come up. In our pursuit of freedom, humanity has been expert in both squashing and championing rights at different points in history, often simultaneously. The powerful oppress until the oppressed rise up and, and then they themselves may even go on to oppress the oppressors. It's a vicious cycle often. In our Western legal system, we've kind of developed this idea of a social contract, the idea that an individual has to give up some of their rights in order to allow an elected government to protect all or the rest of their rights, um, kind of a, a greater good sort of argument. You know, for example, my right, my right to drive as fast as I want on the road um, is limited to ensure that pedestrians and other road users are safe from any reckless behavior I might engage in in exercising my freedom. And if I do that, Brad will pull me over and then I'll have a fine. Largely, this construct, this idea, comes from an understanding that the natural human individual, whether you see what it looks like in the Bible or not, if left to their own devices, will ultimately create a state of anarchy where the most powerful will rule and there will be no independent judge or government to say where one person's rights need to be balanced against another's. What is a fundamental human right, however an individual or group will define them, are usually seen as being unquestionable. When those rights are questioned, then lawyers are engaged to argue whose, whose right is more important, at least as far as the law will recognise, and then the, the dispute between those competing rights is left to be judged by independent tribunals, ultimately, in Australia at least, to the High Court, where they get to say whose right is right. Our passage today in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it doesn't give us the answer to how to structure government to protect human rights for the greater good. But it does speak into our society's preoccupation with rights and the often selfish desire that we have to maintain them. This chapter sits in the middle of a discussion about food sacrifice to idols and, and steps in as a bit of a, a check showing how we as Christians should view rights differently to the way the world does, particularly in light of the task that we have of proclaiming the gospel to a world that desperately needs it. So before we kick into uh, a bit of a background on, on the chapter, let me quickly pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your sovereign hand over this world. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us through it. And God, we pray today as we look to what you've said about rights, as we consider how we use them, we pray that you would challenge and correct our thinking, cause us to love you more, and help us to serve you with all our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So, by way of quick background, Braden gave us a bit of a, a couple of highlights. In the last couple of weeks, we read through chapter 8, 
Um, and there Paul challenged the Corinthian church uh, to swim against the cultural flow, to love their brothers and sisters enough, and that is in Christ, to choose not to eat any meat on the chance it might have been sacrificed to idols if it might cause that brother or sister to stumble and even fall away from the faith. Or as Paul puts it, to be destroyed. Basically, Paul has outlined for the Corinthian church that while the food that had been sacrificed itself did not inherently change the eater's standing before God, um, that's the meat itself didn't do anything, it didn't mean that eating was necessarily okay. The issue was by eating it, the person was holding themselves out as being okay with idolatry. Whereas a Christian, well, they should have been known for being sold out to having a life of undivided worship of the one true God. The consequence of this link was that a new believer who's come into the family and has lived an idol-worshipping life for their entire life might see a more mature believer eating the idol food and because of a weak conscience be led back into and away from, uh, back into a life of adultery and away from devotion to God. So, Paul's message for the Corinthian listener was starting to sound like a pretty big deal. The whole family, social and business life of the day revolved around interaction at these temples. Birthdays, weddings, celebrations of new babies, mornings, mourning of loved ones, discussions of the latest news and political ideas, important business dealings, meetings, they all happened in and around the temple, often over a big meal, under the watchful gaze of the relevant deity being worshipped in that specific temple. This meant that Paul was calling for some pretty drastic change in the lives of the Corinthians. Change that could have had some serious ramifications for the individuals at various levels of their social, political and family life. And so, as we move into chapter 9, he, he steps away from his more direct call to do away with idolatry, as in he doesn't name it less, like that way anymore, but he kind of, in fact, widens the scope of the challenge by demonstrating to the Corinthian church how he himself responds to the freedom that he's received through the gospel and, obviously, as a consequence, how he's calling them to do likewise. So I'm going to work through this passage in three headings. The first, I'll point out that we, we have rights. That's it's still there. But the gospel, kind of counterintuitively, frees us from rights so that we're freed to proclaim the gospel. We have rights, the gospel frees us from rights, and we're freed to proclaim the gospel. Another quick side note, rhetorical questions. You might be forgiven for wondering on a first reading of chapter 9 whether Paul is saying much at all in light of the huge number of questions that he poses um, throughout. There's 16 rhetorical questions posed in this, this section alone. And you might remember from one of J.R. sermons a few weeks ago that a rhetorical question, basically one that begs an answer in the way the question is phrased or in the context in which it's placed. Now, sometimes they're not even placed to be answered, but these are. And there are a lot of them in this passage. So we'll work through them and uh, see what Paul's trying to say by asking us questions. So, here, first, first point, we have rights. I'm oh, sorry, don't, don't worry about looking at the screen. It's just going to stay like that the whole time. Um, 
<laughs> because I didn't get there, sorry. <laughs> You'll have to have your Bibles open. And I encourage you to have your Bibles open because we will be going through verses. <laughs> ah. It's a free country. I don't know about you, but um, when I was growing up, this was a commonly declared right of my primary school days. Well, at least along, amongst my siblings. If someone was questioning why I was doing something, or probably why I was questioning my sister, more often than not, um, I or she could simply trot that line out, it's a free country, and the person asking the question should be silenced. Well, at least that's what we thought, usually just created an argument. We'd obviously picked up at some point in, 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 that, that little us had this great claim on individual freedom that many of us today have grown accustomed to. Basically, I can do whatever I like, what's it to you? Now clearly, as we look here, this thinking was not particularly unique to the little town of Catherine in the 1990s. Paul rhetorically says essentially the same thing to his Corinthian readers in the mid-50s in Corinth. It's 50 AD, not 1950. <laughs> Paul says in verse 1, am I not free? Now, as I mentioned earlier, you remember that in the last, chapter, the last verse of chapter 8, Paul had put the big, seemingly exaggerated challenge to the, to the church, saying that if it would save his brother or sister from being led away from the worship of God, he would choose not to eat meat at all, whether sacrificed to an idol or not. And so in light of that statement, he kicks off chapter 9 with that question, am I not free? And naturally, the, the answer is, of course, Paul, of course, you're free. You're a, he, he's a Roman citizen. He's not a bond servant to anyone. He can move about as he pleases. He is a free man. Curiously, Paul leaves that question. And, and he goes on to build a second line of rhetorical questions, beginning with, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord Jesus? And you might remember from Acts that um, in chapter 1, verses 21 to 22, they talk about needing to have seen Jesus as a, as a mark of the apostle. And so again, the answers, perhaps in reverse order, are yes, Paul, you've seen Jesus, and yes, Paul, you are an apostle. Then to make his apostleship even clearer, or more clear for the readers, he says, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? He takes a pause from his rhetorical questions now, and, and he kind of answers his questions. He, he says that the Corinthian church were in fact the evidence, the, the stamp of approval, the official seal, uh, the, 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 the work on the mantelpiece for people to see and, and demonstrate that Paul was in fact an apostle of Jesus. And, and if you remember back through, one, uh, through our working through 1 Corinthians, in chapter 3, verse 10, he reminded the Corinthians that he'd laid a foundation of the gospel for them. In chapter 4, verse 15, he'd described himself as their father in, in Christ through the gospel. And unusually, I suppose, he it's also that this work of the gospel was described in right at the start as being on its face at least weak and foolish but but paul is saying this is the message that has had great impact in the lives of the corinthian believers and it's that that impact that paul holds up as his defense as it were of his apostleship so paul is free he's seen jesus and he's one of jesus's own apostles great Okay, we're halfway through the letter and Paul is now introducing himself again in some kind of pop quiz fashion. 
Why? Well, it's actually pretty clever what Paul's doing. He does this for a really important reason, and I think it's another example of how skillfully Paul employs rhetoric or the, the art of persuasion by carefully using words um, when he presents the gospel and reveals God to God's people. What Paul's doing here is he's effectively building up his importance, but he's aiming to do so inoffensively. He's trying to avoid any allegation that he is boasting about himself. And the reason why will become clear as we go on, um, but that's, that's kind of why he's building it this way. So, the next group of rhetorical questions that Paul um, uh, works through is some of the rights that Paul obtains by virtue of this position. Free, apostle, so what? Let's see. And, and particularly in verse 14, when we get to at the end there, he'll describe himself as one who proclaims the gospel. So, this is, this is apostle proclaiming the gospel, this is what, what he should get for the fact that he does, does that role. So in verse 4, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Answer, yes. <laughs> yes, you do. Five, verse 5, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the, and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Answer again would be, yeah, of course you could. Verse 6, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Answer this time, no, of course you don't have to. So, yes, yes, no. Now, just to kind of make things even trickier, Paul now uses questions to answer his questions um, <laughs> as, as we work through. Um, and so he asks three more in verse 7. And they are, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? And who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Of course, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Paul would say, no one. The soldier is given the rations and the tools needed to defend his king and his people. No one, well, perhaps today, if people eat the fruit that they're picking, they might get sacked. But, but at least at the time, um, the answer was no one. The, the worker was entitled to sustain him or herself with the fruit that they were working, on to, put to, working to produce. Uh, and likewise, as a shepherd, they could take milk for their sustenance. Paul, then, as the one who is proclaiming the gospel to the Corinthian church, is demonstrating that he had an obvious right to bring, uh, obvious right to being supplied with the needs that he needed to have for his work. So it would include the right to have enough support to bring along a wife if he had one. We saw earlier that he doesn't. Um, someone who could co-labor with him. And two, that that support would be sufficient so that he wouldn't need to work on the side for a living, just like those other employments that we looked at and that he went through. There would be enough support from what he did that he wouldn't have to work a part-time job or, or perhaps even a nine to five to properly support himself and his family um, while they work for the gospel. And he braces the argument, as we just saw, with some illustrations describing people who labour in other roles who are supplied by that labour. Alright, so we've worked through a fair few verses, and you might think, job well done, we see your point, thanks Paul, uh, but he's not done yet. Building even further, Paul moves naturally, using a few more rhetorical questions, to lay on some further authority for his claim on this right for support from the Corinthians. 
First, he goes back to the law of Moses and he confirms that these rites that he's talking about have in fact always been a command of God. It's in verses 8 to 10. He says, do I say these things? So the things he's just said, do I say all of this on human authority? Does not the law say the same thing? Well, does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Nice, called himself an ox. Maybe he's strong, who knows? <laughs> but he goes on. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Throwing in another practical illustration there at the end of the, now the farmer and thresher, both expecting to be fed from their work. But this rule about muzzling an ox is curious, isn't it? I mean, it's from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, if you wanted to look it up. And it's, in its original context, it was, it was set amongst a, a whole range of commands that related to essentially being kind by allowing provision to others. Uh, it talks about even allowing the ox. Maybe it was hired from someone else or maybe it was your, your own, but to work your mill, to, to tread the grain, but whatever, whichever circumstance, the direction is to allow it to eat some of the grain it was treading while it worked so that it could continue to work hard and would remain ready to keep working. So, Paul nicely grabs the Old Testament and throws it in the New Testament for us to see a meaning that we would never have understood without him revealing that for us. Possibly. Alright. Still not done, Paul goes on to some rules of practice, essentially, to show how that might have looked to the Corinthians. The first one is verse 11, or the next one is verse 11. A bit of a, a common sense approach, perhaps. If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Verse 12, a, a sort of a standard practice. If others share this right, uh, this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Perhaps some of the other um, church founders, we, see, we certainly know from earlier in Corinthians that Apollos has been around. Um, Cephas, people have talked about him. If others are sharing in this rightful claim, should not we? And then verse 13, a historical Jewish practice. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service, which is most likely the, te the temple um, that we're talking about here, although probably works whether it's an idol's temple or not, but, but certainly in the temple, we look in the Old Testament, we see that they got their food from, um, from the work. So do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. Remembering the Levites and the priests didn't have an inheritance. They uh, took their supply from everyone else uh, as they all brought their offerings to God. And that was God's way of providing. And finally, Paul clinches this whole package together with the reminder that this was not only a command of God in the Old Testament, was, but was also a command of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, where he says in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get, should get their living by the gospel. Um, and for those taking notes, Matthew 10, 8 to 10, that's where you'll find that. And if you want to see a similar reference to that sort of argument in um, Paul's work, it's 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18. Okay, Paul has artfully built up his argument, closed off all the gates, and presented to the Corinthian church a bulletproof case for why he, 
as the Corinthians apostle and one who proclaims the gospel to them has a right to be supported by them. Quickly before going to the why, there's a couple of, I think, just implications for us as a church that I think are worth talking about while we're here, while the Bible's sort of pointing to them for us. One of them is support of our, of, of our um, one who proclaims the gospel full-time, I suppose. Of course, we're all, and we'll see this a bit later on, are called to proclaim the gospel full-time. That's, that's what we are called to do as Christians. Um, but we, as a membership of ERCC, have called upon JR to be someone that sets all of his time, so to speak, <laughs> aside um, for the gospel. Um, and we're reminded in this passage that we, as a congregation, have a responsibility to ensure that he's supported appropriately um, and for his labour and that we provide him with adequate, uh, an adequate stipend to support his uh, family, Robin and the kids, um, as JR serves in this way of proclaiming the gospel for us. And uh, we do that together and we'll continue to revise and consider that together as a congregation. The flow-on effect, I suppose, is that, um, of course, we as a membership at ERCC provide our material blessings um, for that to occur. And so we give to the work of the church in order to supply JR and, and Robin to support their family. If you've been around this church for a little while and you're, you're not a member, you might have noticed we don't collect an offering as part of our gathering. Um, we consider the support of this church is a, is a responsibility for the membership of our church. And so it becomes a more of a behind the scene uh, thing that happens. And we don't want to put anything in the way of anybody coming along and seeing or thinking, as kind of Paul points out, that we're just trying to get stuff from them. We, we want to have anyone think that they've just got to pay to be here. You are free to be here. But as members, we do that. So it's another just um, reminder for us to think about in, in terms of the practical outworkings of this particular passage. I also think it's also a nice opportunity to say how grateful I am for, for JR and his work that he does in ser serving us in that way. And I know that's shared by our church community. So, the big why. Why has Paul developed this airtight case? Sometimes I wish I could speak like this when I, uh, when I presented my arguments. <laughs> spend, spend more time. And so we moved to, uh, to point two. I keep looking at the screen. We moved to point two. <laughs> the gospel frees us <laughs> from our rights. Point two, the gospel frees us from our rights. So here we, we're back to, am I not free? This is the big question Paul raised at the headline of all of this, where we've just moved through before he built his credentials as an apostle. Of course, we answered that question earlier as, yes, Paul, you are free. Roman citizen, bond, not a bond servant. Come and go as you please. You are a free person. You are free. But is that, is that all there is to freedom? I did a quick scroll through YouTube just to see kind of what answers I might get for the question of what freedom means. I came across a, a promo video for a National Geo series featuring Morgan Freeman, <laughs> funny in light of the context, where he posed the question to people right across the globe, what do you think freedom means? The answers were as varied as the people, um, and they ranged from running or swimming naked, flying, not working, going to the beach, Australian, <laughs> drinking whatever a person wants, and as much as they want. <laughs> that wasn't an Australian, but could have been. 
Freedom was expressed as being able to liberate oneself from other people's expectations or from the law. Being yourself, being freed from oppression or fear and doing what your heart wants. And it went through to being described as art or dancing, being able to express ourselves in thought or action. Some believed pessimistically it didn't exist. It was a utopian concept or something that we lost as soon as we were born. But I think it was all summed up in one person's answer from the Philippines that freedom is having the power to create your own existence in the world. To be who you want to be. Now it seems that in Corinth, this was the, the, the Christians there, they, they, they tended to view that freedom, freedom this way too. In, six, in chapter 6 verse 12, we, we came across their slogan, all things are lawful to me. But is that what Paul meant by his question? Is this what true freedom looks like for the Christian? Well, if we, we look back again, chapter 7, Paul said in verse 17, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him or her and to which God has called him or her. In verse 22 of that same chapter, Paul described even the free person as being a bond servant to Christ. And of course, we just saw in chapter 8, 13, that he'd made the big statement that, would, that he would not eat meat if it would cause a member of his church to stumble. So what then is freedom? In the last couple of weeks, Roger reminded us that um, there was and there still is now a strong cultural flow that seeks to pull us along enticing us to embrace a notion of freedom that is self-directed. And for the Corinthian Christians, this cultural flow had them wanting to have their Christianity and maintain their cultural practices in the idol temples at all costs. So after building up to say that Paul was an apostle of Jesus and, and herald of Jesus' saving gospel message, with all the rights that come with that, he comes back to this notion of freedom and once again, flips it on its head. Paul redefines true freedom from it's a free country or from a pursuit of self-interest and makes the well-being of the community of God in response to God of highest importance. Paul has identified the rights that are due to him and look it was probably it was no doubt an expectation of the Corinthians for or certainly at least their upper class they would have full well expected that great orators and experts, wise people would charge for their knowledge. Otherwise, what was the point of knowing it after all? But after identifying those rights, he bursts that bubble right out from under them and says he has not and will not use any of those rights. In verse 12, after reminding the Corinthians that if others in fact benefit from this appropriate claim on their resource, then Paul, as their foundational preacher, he must support, he must deserve it even more, right? I mean, that's, that's what he says. But he goes on and says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And in verse 15, after reminding the Corinthians that, his, that this supply was in fact a command to the, to the church from the Lord Jesus himself, I mean, what more could you, could you say? He says, but I have not made use of any of these rights, nor am I writing 
these things to secure any such provision. Just in case the Corinthians thought, Paul was now underhandedly saying, you can start the bank transfers now, guys. He would rather die, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. Strong words. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big call. Paul is challenging the Corinthians to give up their apparent, or at least in chapter 8, their so-called right to eat whatever they want for the sake of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul gives his own life as an example of how this attitude to freedom should look instead. But to what end? Is it just some kind of vain asceticism, sort of a a counter puffing up, as it were, Um, as opposed to the Corinthians being puffed up with knowledge leading them to eat? Is this just a puffing up with knowledge leading not to eat? Just kind of the opposite, puffing up. Paul begins to answer this question in verses 16 to 18, and we'll explore this more again next week. But let's read from verse 14, where it says, The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, for I am writing these things, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But, not, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching... I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. As the NIV puts it, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. That's what Paul holds out as his reward. His boast was the gospel. And so we come to the third point today of our passage. Like Paul, we are freed to proclaim the gospel. The task of advancing the gospel is so totally dominated Paul's life that it unashamedly inspired his willingness to make any sacrifice to win others and to protect the others in the faith, which was the exact call he was making on his readers. He demonstrates, he was at pains to demonstrate the lowering of himself for the gospel, even to the point of death. And look, I I don't think he's exaggerating when he said he would not eat meat for the sake of a brother. If we look back at at 2 Corinthians, sorry, look forward at another letter that he writes to the Corinthian church, um, in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 9, he kind of, he reveals that he was actually in need while he was in Corinth with them but he still didn't enlist their help. And you might remember a few months ago when we looked at chapter 4, 10 to 12 of the hardship that Paul described in presenting the gospel to the Corinthians. Chapter 4, 10 to 12, if you want to check it out. He really would endure anything for the sake of presenting the gospel free of charge and therefore free of any hindrances to the reception of that gospel. And just as a side note, in case you're wondering, he doesn't always do this either. So he did get supplied by different people. The Macedonians, for example, supported him. So it's 
he's making a point and, and he's doing, he's willing to do it and it's obviously necessary in the case of where he's at. And so, in the same way, he called the Corinthians to a course of action that would effectively require them to take a hit in their social standing, all for the sake of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Not eating food sacrificed to idols would result in them cutting themselves off at times from friends, from patrons, political allies, neighbours, even family. Sounds a bit like a call someone else had made of a similar nature when he was walking around. Paul knew that the call that was being made was by no means easy. That's why he had to build such a clear picture of the right that he had that he was laying down. But in doing so, he recognized that the gospel alone provided true freedom. A freedom that could free them even from the pursuit of legitimate rights or for the benefit of others. And for Paul, that had led even to the point where he could see the unobstructed proclamation of the gospel as his greatest reward. This was a call on Paul's life, a call that he discharged as a steward rendering a service to his master. But it's a call on our lives as followers of God today too. Paul says in chapter 11 verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Jesus, in describing himself in Mark chapter 10 verses 43 to 45, said, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all for even the son of man as jesus came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many we read earlier from Philippians, where Paul wrote, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. These are incredible statements, aren't they? That Jesus, the creator and sustainer of the universe, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself as a servant and died a death that you, that I, that we all deserved. A death we deserved because we fall short of, God, of giving our lives in complete service to him. A service that he ultimately and absolutely deserves. A death we deserved because we've lived for ourselves. We've said to God, yeah, I, I don't think I really need you. I'd like to hold on to my rights. 
Thanks anyway. Yet, this is a call on our lives. If we go back to our points, we have rights. There's no doubt about that. We are individuals with the capacity to choose not to do the dishes after a big day. We can choose to sleep and let our spouse get up for the baby because we're tired. We can choose to prepare, to not to prepare anymore for something that's coming up because, you know, well, we've had enough. We have the right to not come to church to encourage our brothers and sisters because, you know, not feeling it today. We have the right not to stick around to share reflections on God's word together because ah, we've got other things to do. We have the right to do many things with our money. We have lots of rights on our time, on our resources, on our activity. But the gospel frees us from our rights. What a paradox. We're freed from our rights. And we're freed to proclaim the gospel in word and in action by laying down our rights for the good of others. So let me ask you, when is the last time you remember actively choosing to do that? I mean, maybe it's recently. Maybe, it's, hopefully, it's, it's often. But think about that. Choosing to lay your right or even an apparent right down for someone else. Or maybe the better question is, when is the last time you lay down your rights for a brother or sister and it gave you joy? But the laying down of that right for the sake of the gospel brought you joy and satisfaction that the gospel was being demonstrated freely in your love for them, as Paul did. The problem is, <laughs> my problem, if no one else, is that my desires are impacted by sin. I can hear Paul's words and I can give, um, you know, assent to them. I can give myself until I break. But if I just do it as a rule, if I, if I just serve and, and grind myself down in a legalistic way, all it will produce is bitterness. Like Paul, the only way we can lay our rights and ultimately our lives down like Jesus is by being freed by a greater love. We will only pursue our brothers and sisters' rights above our own when our love for Jesus is greater than our love for ourselves. If you're here today and you don't recognize this freedom in Christ, if you don't really understand why it's even necessary, if you struggle with that idea, if you continue to seek freedom ultimately in a life lived for yourself, you may not realize it yet, but you are not free. But you can be. My, employ, my, uh, my encouragement to you would be to turn to God in prayer. Ask Him to reveal Himself to you in His Word, to give you understanding of who He is, to give you the strength to be able to lay your rights at the foot of His cross, and look, at the end of the day, talk to someone here about it if you'd like to continue to explore that. In his great mercy, Jesus himself pays the price of our separation from him.
through the work of His Spirit, He allows us to discover true freedom in Him for ourselves, to repent of our lives lived for us as King, to turn away from it and to pursue Him as King. Friends, Paul preached freely to set people free because he had been set free. As we seek to respond to this same freedom, we will only share Paul's concern for our brothers and sisters for whom Christ has died when we love Christ most. We're going to spend some time, as we always do, responding to God's word in song and prayer together this morning. A bit later on, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We do this. We share the Lord's Supper together as a people united in Christ through his sacrificial death that we've just spoken about on the cross and his resurrection to new life. We do this together to remember and celebrate that event until he comes. If you're visiting us, and you're not sure if you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, then I encourage you to reflect on what you've heard, but refrain from taking communion at that time. If you're a Christian visiting with us today, you're not a member of ERCC, but if you've demonstrated your trust in Christ through baptism and membership of your own local church that proclaims the same gospel you've heard today, then I invite you to join with us as members of ERCC at the appropriate time as well. We'll do that later. As we've read God's word together today, we've been called upon to consider our concern for each other, our love for one another in response to Christ's love for us. This is not just caring for a good friend, though it will include that. This is not just speaking to someone you like to talk to on a Sunday, though it may include that too. But this is a sharing of a deep love of a brother or sister in Christ a sacrificial love, despite how that person reacts, despite how that person has shown love to you, possibly even undeserved. So as you respond yourself to God's word this morning, as you sing, as you pray, consider and marvel at Christ's work in your own life. Reflect upon how you exercise your own freedom and confess the areas of your life where the use of those rights are broken the areas where you have a greater concern for yourself than for Christ and for the brother or sister for whom he has died. Christ has done that for them. Why would we not? Thank him for his forgiveness and his patience and ask him to shift your heart, to shift each of our hearts in such a way that we would be prepared to lay down our own rights at the foot of the cross for the sake of each other, in his name, and all to his glory. As I said, we're going to start that reflection time together as we respond to God's word. I invite the music guys to come up while I pray. And as we usually do, let's respond in, in a prayer of adoration as we, as we reflect on what Christ has done so let's do that together and we'll sing together as well. Gracious God, we do indeed marvel at the cross. 
we marvel at your gracious gift of life to us. We wonder and are amazed that through the power of the gospel, this good news that Jesus came and died for us, that through that gospel you provide in us true freedom, even from our own rights. We are humbled, Lord Jesus, that you did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but you emptied yourself, taking the form of a servant, being born as a human, and humbling yourself in obedience to the Father to the point of death, even the humiliating and painful death on a cross for us. Holy Spirit, we're in awe of the work that you have done in our hearts, allowing us to see the beauty of the cross, making it possible for us to lay ourselves down as imperfectly as we are able to bring God the glory. All praise to you, Lord, who humbly came to bear our sorrow, our sin, our shame, who lived to die, who died to rise again for us as the all-sufficient sacrifice. We worship you, God. Amen.